0: For our second message today, we have a sermon by Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Led by the Spirit. Mr. Hopefully my voice will stay with me. I have to take a break from singing there, which you guys probably appreciated. So when we look at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, On the day of Pentecost. If we look at it honestly. We look at everything that transpired on that day. Really look. At what happened. We are left in little doubt. That what we see in the church today. Is significantly different. Than what they saw. On that day. Think about it. What they experienced. On the day of Pentecost. Is in many ways a far cry from what the church experiences now. The church was born on that day. And as the scripture says, it was imbued with power. In fact, we see that power continuing in very distinct ways, don't we? Throughout the experience of the early church. We see miracles after miracles, we see signs and we see wonders. And then we look at the lives of the apostles. And we see their work, their ministry. Incredible things done. I don't know about any of you, but have you been arrested and put in prison and then an earthquake shakes every gate free and an angel leads you out of that prison cell? Fortunately not, right? We don't want that. But it's quite different, isn't it? And we have to look at that. We have to accept that. And look at this and try and understand. Now, I am not saying that we do not experience the power of the Holy Spirit. We can all attest to the power of the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, we are here, aren't we? We have the conviction. We have received, those of us that have been baptized, received the Holy Spirit. We are very familiar with the Holy Spirit. So please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we are without the Holy Spirit. And neither am I saying that we don't see miracles. We do see miracles. Each individual has seen the work of God in their lives. Sometimes in very miraculous ways. and Sometimes in subtle ways. We do see those things too we do see God moving and his power in our lives. We've experienced his power, his grace. Ask any one of our brothers and sisters who've come out of the world who have really come out of the struggles that are in this world. And every single one of them will tell you they experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And neither am I saying that we don't commune with God. Of course we do. What's I mean, what's the point of praying if we don't commune with God? Of course we do. We are connected through that spirit. And some of us have very vivid and very clear communication with God in those prayers. And others, perhaps it's more subtle. I wish we could just have a conversation where he could just say, Matt. Quit doing that and do this. Make life simple, wouldn't it? But we do get that communication. We do get that guidance. We get that influence of the Spirit. But still, even knowing all of that, we know in our bones that what happened on Pentecost and the experiences that we see in the early church are radically different than what we see today. When was the last time that we had thousands of people added to the church in a single event, in a single moment? It doesn't happen very often, does it? A very powerful moment. Turn back, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Because even though Curtis tried to pinch my scriptures, I do want to go over some things, but from a different perspective. And I I appreciated very much what what he was telling us here. Because he puts into context the situation that was there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So we have that famous line, right? When the day of Pentecost had fully come. This wasn't the start of the day. Which the start of the Pentecost would have been when? Sunset, right? Sunset the day before. It wasn't at night. It wasn't in secret. It was in the day. Very open, public. And of course, that was the point. It was designed to be a public so that everybody in Jerusalem would know this is happening. This is really happening. So this powerful moment would be told and retold by all of those that were in Jerusalem that went far and wide into the known world, as Curtis read earlier. And it says, they were with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak with other languages as the spirit gave them utterance what if we were have that to happen today right now who would freak out uh huh because we don't see that very often do we but we have seen it before do you know where we saw it before? Before Pentecost? We've seen this fire before. Because this is a fire that can come through a building and not actually, fortunately for Ken, set anything on fire. Right? And, and the tongues of fire were floating above their heads and any of you use product that is flammable, <laughs> you're in trouble. But not really. Because this is the kind of Fire that does not burn. Where have we seen that fire before? Anybody want to guess? Burning bush. Let's take a look at that. In Exodus chapter 3 and uh, begin, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priests of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert. <clears throat> and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. A known mountain of God, Right? And the angel of the Lord, the Malach of the Lord, the one that we would know as Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now, I'm going to take a look at this. I'm going to turn aside and look at this great sight and why the bush does not burn. And how many times had he wished that he'd just kept going? He didn't have to deal with all those Israelites if he just ignored that. Of course, as he walked along the way, I'm sure every bush would start going on fire. Because God had a mission for him. But it sounds very much like what the church was experiencing, doesn't it? It's a fire that doesn't burn. There are very many similarities here. What was Moses called to do at this burning bush? And we were talking about this this morning at breakfast. And before I could get out my answer, I was about to wax eloquent to my wife about what these similarities are. My son Joseph pipes up and he says, well, one of the similarities is that Moses was sent to free the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And the church was sent. To free the people of the world from the bondage of sin. Right there, that boy. Isn't that an amazing insight? This is just one of the things that connects Moses and the burning bush, whoever thought of it, to Pentecost. Then, he was also given power. He was given power. Just, well, a little different. There wasn't any snake handling going on at Pentecost. That would have come later, right? But Moses was. Remember, he was given power. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Then Moses, no, let me, let me skip over that. I'm gonna, <laughs> I've got so much to pack in here, I'm just going to skip over it. So, he was given power. He'd throw his rod down, it would turn into a snake. Pick it back up again, turn back into a rod. And even better, later it ate the snakes that the other... Magicians of, of Egypt had, didn't they? And then he was given the power to heal and to give leprosy. Given two powers right there by the Holy Spirit. Interesting. And then the last one that we will go to, Exodus 4 and verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, in his long litany of excuses as to why he was the wrong man for the job, He says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither Before nor since have you spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech, slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made that mouth that you're complaining with, that you don't have a mouth to speak? Or who has made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth, And teach you what you will say. And what do we see at Pentecost? People speaking. With the gift of the Holy Spirit being able to speak in all of those languages. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. Curtis read part of this. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? And then skipping uh, down to just kind of uh, verse 11, And we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? They were truly amazed and asking, what is this about? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? A lot of it has been made, right, of the gift of tongues. So often it's just <laughs> it's totally missing the point about communication. It's about setting people free with that communication. You know, we all speak the same language here in this country, right? Well, mostly. I'm actually speaking English. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're hearing it in American. But we're understood, aren't we? We're one language. We're in one community. But there in Jerusalem, from all over the world, And the idea was to infect the mind of each of those individuals with the gospel in their language so they could take it back to where they came from. I think Curtis touched on this earlier too. You think about these folks, some of them who came from a very far away were probably here for a few months. They probably stayed in Jerusalem from, from Passover season, right, and waited and counted 50 days to Pentecost. But you know, you're not getting on an airplane and back in your hometown in a couple of hours. They traveled a long way. They had seen everything that had gone on in that period of time. I mean, we forget, Jesus was seen all over the place. The scripture tells us for 40 days, he was seen wandering around. And people would have known it. And think about this. How many of these people that were here had been at the protests when they said, crucify him? And now they are hearing this rushing mighty wind and these (laughs) scaredy cat followers of Jesus speaking with power. The rumors had persisted for 40 days that Jesus, who was so publicly executed, was walking around town, visiting with his disciples, encouraging them. And we have different accounts of that. Reports of him being seen throughout the area. And doubtless, there was a growing expectation, maybe that something else was going to happen. This had been a remarkable period of time. And sure enough, they witnessed an incredible event that they struggled to understand. Then others, mocking, said, Ah, they're full of new wine. They're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass. In the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. They shall speak forth. They shall announce. They shall proclaim. What are they going to proclaim? I will show show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know you saw these things you saw these miracles him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That is a sermon. That is a powerful sermon. And this wasn't a nice bunch of well-behaved congregants. This was a bunch of people that had been a mob that had called for the death of somebody. Can you imagine receiving this message? And this is from a man who, who had denied even knowing Jesus just 50 days ago. And now he's giving this powerful message. Let me ask you a question. What if I stood up, uh, stood up here and said, Men and women of Tulsa, Oklahoma, this man, Jesus, that you took by wicked hands the blood is on you you killed him what if I said that to you because we have haven't we every single one of us took by our own wicked works Our own hands stained with his blood. And we murdered him. We put him on that stake. You know, we sing a very, very powerful song. A very powerful hymn. It's called, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We know that one. It's hard to sing part of that. It says, Behold the man upon the stake. My sin... Upon his shoulders, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. My sin, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. (laughs) Powerful words. What are we to make of this? Peter is telling us today that just as much as the crowd in front of him was guilty of that blood of our Savior, so are we. And they're like cut to the heart as each one of us was cut when we realized this. He said to them, when they asked him, what what do we do? I mean, they genuinely recognized what they had done. Their voices were yelling, crucify him. And now they know, don't they, what they have done. And Peter said, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying be saved from this perverse generation then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about three thousand souls were added to them and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and followed in the breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and held all things in common and they sold their possessions and and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. That prophecy of Joel, continue to be fulfilled. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Old Testament doctrine. We think of it as a New Testament doctrine, don't we, because of that that speech. But this is from Joel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and they were saved. And I think we sometimes get a little uncomfortable with this, because it seems pretty simple. We don't want it to be simple. Well, okay, I mean, you can't just, just, you can't just get baptized. We've got we've to go through these things. And of course, I'm not, I'm not minimizing baptism counseling and, and, and guidance. But these are men and women who are understanding of the scriptures. And their minds were open. And there was a very simple process. <laughs> But once they understood who the Messiah was that they had killed him and that he had been raised again they accepted this simple message. They were cut to the heart. They simply accepted that Jesus was that long promised Messiah. He was offering them a new covenant and not a covenant that was based on the law. Which they broke. Remember Paul talks about that. The law wasn't at fault. It was us that were at fault. And we cannot get ourselves to salvation through keeping of the law. This was the new covenant in grace. In faith. And I love that imagery because in reality it was the first covenant. Because it was the covenant of faith of Abraham. right? And we can read that in Hebrews. Jesus Christ who was crucified by our wicked deeds, God has made both Lord and Christ and we know it in our bones and that through this faith we have received the remission of sins. And I love that part where it says it's not just a promise for them. And it wasn't even just for their children. It didn't stop with a couple of generations. We are here today trusting Relying and following in that promise. We have been baptized for the remission of sins. But I have a challenge. I have a challenge for all of our young people who are sitting back there on the the back rows. And maybe dotted around. You have grown up in the church. You have heard this gospel. You have heard this truth. You know it. And we have a baptism. We have a baptismal right over there. Don't we? And what better day to receive the Holy Spirit than on the day of Pentecost? Oh, well, I don't have a change of clothes. We'll buy you some clothes. <laughs> well, we don't have towels. It's warm outside, but we'll go buy some towels too. Think about it if you have reached that moment, that maturity, you are convicted in your heart. You have learned and grown as Timothy in the Holy Scriptures. There is water aplenty for a baptism. Repent, everyone, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Seriously consider it. But then we have to return, don't we, to the question I asked at the beginning. Because it's a big question. Because the kinds of things that we see in the early church don't seem to happen today. In Acts chapter 2, in verse uh, 42, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and of prayers, and then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So maybe that's the answer. The reason we don't see all these big wonders and these big signs is because we don't have apostles. Right? I mean, some church organizations thought they did. <laughs> But that doesn't really work, does it? Because that's not what Joel said. Joel did, say, did not say that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all the apostles. It said on all flesh. Basically on anyone who accepts that. And we saw it at Pentecost. We saw it of those, the disciples and the apostles that were gathered. In fact, the apostles had already been given the Holy Spirit by Jesus earlier, but then we see the rest of the Holy Spirit given out, and then another 3,000, and then how many after that, and after that, since then until now. So, what are we to make of this? Peter said that it's Pentecost that we look at that moment that the Spirit of God was able to be given to all who call upon the name of the Lord. Everyone that calls on his name. For some reason, and we can, we can argue about it, we can study it, we can guess, but for some reason, before that moment, before Pentecost, the Spirit was given to just a few by comparison. Before the sacrifice of Jesus, before his resurrection and ascension, for Reasons may be that it's hard to understand. The Spirit of God only had been given to a few men and women. Now I have a suspicion that it might be more about understanding and faith than anything else. But for some reason there was a limit. But regardless of that reason, now there is not. The Spirit can be poured out on So why no wonders? Why no signs? You have to deal with that question. It's a challenging question. Why does the Spirit of God not move and work in the same way that it did then? In the same way that we saw in the early church? Is the Spirit of God somehow different than it was? It doesn't sound right, does it? Doesn't the scripture say, I change not, says the Lord? It says that there is no shadow of turning with him. It says in Isaiah, Isaiah 40 and verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases in strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like his wings, like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. So if the Spirit of God has not changed, then might it be reasonable to surmise that we, have changed. Maybe we have changed. We're not doing or not following or obeying. Or do, we're not doing something that has affected how the Spirit of God can work in us. And this, of course, has some very challenging implications, doesn't it? It is a big challenge for each one of us. In John 3 and verse 1, we have the very familiar passage. Very familiar passage of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And I think it perhaps can help us understand, and as I've tried to been trying to understand this, and, and look at things a little differently, to see the Holy Spirit move in the sorts of, sorts of ways that we we saw in the early church, not on, just on Pentecost, but later as the church grew and spread across the world. We know the story very, very well. There was a Pharisee, wasn't there? His name was Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night, and he seems to be very genuine about recognizing that Jesus has come from God because nobody could do the things that Jesus was doing unless he was from God. In verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you, one is born again or begotten again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." And Nicodemus said to him, "How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born?" And Jesus answered, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the spirit of, of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God." That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Think about that. I don't think this was an easy thing and It's still not an easy thing to understand. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, You're a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify to what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus is saying this is an earthly thing. This is an earthly example of how the spirit moves. It's like the wind. Well, let's take a look at that. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you could hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now this, of course, is not the first time that we have a connection between the Spirit and wind. Spirit is breath, isn't it? It is that divine wind of God. But it's not a wind of breath that requires an atmosphere. Surely not. But again, Jesus was talking in this analogy, in this physical world that we live in, and he's trying to take these incredibly high things. The scripture says my ways are not your ways says the Lord. And he's trying to dumb it down to to our level. Help us to understand. You know, you think about it, even today with our satellite technology, you know, what was it, a week ago, we're all looking at the weather and we're like, oh, Pentecost has got to be a mess. Thunderstorms, Ha! what do they know? We prayed, and we got good weather. But even with all that technology, right, we can see the storms. We can see the rain. We can see the clouds. We can even forecast within a reasonable amount of accuracy. But we still can't see the wind. And we can't say, that bit of wind, there it is, started here and went there. This analogy still holds true. We haven't unlocked this. But Jesus is saying, we don't know where the wind comes from and where it goes. You know, when Rick and I were uh, here on, it was a Friday, we were, we were putting the tent up, and the guys came over and said, well, you know, firstly they asked, well, how do you want the tent? We said, straight. If you go look at it, it's straight. That's OK. But then they said, do you want all the side wall- walls? It's kind of warmed up because of the order had had the sidewalls in case it was rain. <laughs> and we're like, well, we do want some of them because we, we're going to have a class in there, and all the kids' stuff will just blow away, right, if there's a good, strong wind. So we're trying to guess what direction the wind is going to blow the next day. That's impossible. Right? So, okay, well, we'll just do like a horseshoe thing and hope the wind doesn't go this way. But if it does, it's all just stuck to the back of the tent and they can go retrieve it. It's laughable that we can guess which direction the wind is going to blow. What can we understand about the wind, though? We could understand... That at the moment they asked us the question, the wind was blowing from the northeast to the southwest. That's all we could know. That's all you can really know about the wind, isn't it? When it is blowing and you are in it, you can feel the direction that it is going. You know, we've got little hairs on our skin. We feel the air movement over our over those hairs and they're connected to our nervous system and they they tell us which way the wind is blowing. We don't know where it will end up. We don't know when it will stop. Does it stop? Does the wind ever stop? Think about that. Have you ever been outside on just a calm day and you're looking at the trees and it's like, there's no wind. In reality, just about 50 feet up, it could be going at 30 miles an hour. How's that? Don't really understand the wind, other than it's a process of warming and cooling in the atmosphere from the sun and from its orbit and its spin on the axis. That's about all we can tell. But if we ask anybody who's traveled by sailboat, they will agree with us, right? But at the moment that you are sailing, you know which direction the wind is blowing. But in an hour's time, you could be sitting there, waiting for the wind. So we cannot know its destination. We can only know its direction. And only if we're in it. Had Rick and I been inside, we could look at the trees. And have you ever done that? You, you look at the trees and you can see it's windy, right? But which way? Does the, is it the wind bending the tree? Or is it the tree coming back after being bent? Which way? You can't tell. Oh, there's a bit of trash floating along. The wind's going in that direction. But is it really? Because around buildings and around trees and it swirls. And The only way you can really know the direction of the wind is if you were in it, in it, influenced by it, pushed by it. I remember in England, there was like some really good storms would come off the coast. And before the storms, the wind would arrive first where you could walk at a 45 degree angle, right? You know which direction the wind is coming from. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's gentle think that's what Jesus was trying to get us to understand. We don't know what the plan is from beginning to end. It's almost as though he's saying, you're not going to get that. You're not going to understand it. So I'm just going to give you what you need to know. Just be in the wind. It's very much like when Jesus called the disciples and the apostles and he said, follow me. I think I've talked about the uh, new TV show called The Chosen. I know a few of you have been watching it. Stick with it. It gets better. But in that show, they do a really good job at at showing that as Jesus calls each of the disciples, follow me. Where were you going? They didn't say that. They had no idea where he was going. I mean, they had all kinds of Thoughts. I mean, the Messiah is going to come and kick the Romans out and establish a new Davidic kingdom, and, and this guy's the Messiah. I am going to be in the new government. A new ministry, maybe. I like agriculture. I could be the minister for agriculture. They had all kinds of ideas about what Jesus was going to do, they didn't have a clue where they would end up. They didn't know that they would be preaching the word. They didn't know what the word was. But they didn't know that the spirit of God would send them to the edges of the known world. And so many of them, we don't even know their names. They would become teachers and preachers and ultimately martyrs for Jesus Christ. They didn't know where they were going to end up. They just simply followed him. They would be, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and others, chains of imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the word, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and the caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony, a good report through faith, did not receive the promise. And having provide, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The writer of Hebrews is talking about those in the Old Testament that followed God that we don't even know who they were. And those in the New. The disciples. Countless disciples. And those that believed from them and from them. And how many left Jerusalem on Pentecost and went back to Cyrene and Parthia and all those places round about and preached Jesus Christ, the Messiah, crucified. And how many maybe got to preach, like Stephen, one time. He said, follow me. Not knowing where they were going to go. Or how far they would go. And they followed him. So what about us? Do we know what direction the Spirit is blowing? Do we feel that Spirit wind? Or are we hiding inside? The disciples hid inside, right? When Jesus was crucified, he was murdered, and this wasn't going to plan. He was supposed to overthrow the authorities, overthrow the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Romans. They hid inside and it's easy for us to do the same. We have lives. (laughs) Like Nicodemus. like, Like Moses. He was just looking after the sheep. And God said, follow me. That's what he was saying. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishes of men. To Moses, God said, I'm going to use you to liberate my people. Are we inside? Are we inside the mental and physical boundaries that we've made for ourselves? Are we inside our own tabernacle? Being unmoved by the blowing of the spirit wind outside. It's scary. Again, talking about that the chosen show, they, I, I, they just kind of bring to life that moment. I mean... Matthew's busy collecting taxes. You follow me. And he drops the bag, he drops his stuff, and he leaves. And follows him. And you see later on in the scene, he's locking his house up. Gets the key to his parents. And he's gone. Did he ever go back? Ever. I don't know. He followed him. It's scary to follow him. Because Jesus tends to go to dangerous places. He tends to go to difficult places, doesn't he? This is the story, though, from the beginning. We shouldn't really be surprised. Because our father, through Jesus Christ, our father Abraham, right? We are Christ's, we are of Abraham's seed. That is how it started for him. I think, Steve, you were talking about just, just this uh, last week or so, about Abraham obeying in Hebrews eleven eight when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Just follow me. Follow the spirit wind. Which direction? Yeah. Just go that way. Not knowing where he was going. What's the name of the town? That's not what he did. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. The heirs with them of the same promise. Where he waited for a city which has foundations. Whose builder and maker is God. Right there is a clue, isn't it? We like stability. We like foundations. We want to stay in the house that we built, <laughs> right? We want to stay in the life that we built. Now I'm looking at my mortgage, and I'm like, five years. I might have this thing paid off. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe. And then all of the world happens, right? And we're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to refinance this thing if I lose my job. We like this stability, and this house, this life that we've built, and the wind is what? It isn't stable. Not in that sense. It blows wherever it wants to go, and the Spirit will drive us there. This is God's way. It's the way of faith. And it perhaps is the only way that we can understand His nature. I think that's really there. We're so tiny in comparison to the spirit and the power of God. How, how can he help us to understand what he's doing and where he is going? All the words of scripture attempt to explain this. They attempt to explain what the Godhead is and what God is trying to do with man. He wants us to follow us in faith, in the spirit of Jesus Christ. So that we can begin to understand. We're just like Abraham. Not knowing where we are going to go. We often talk about the Christian life as a calling, don't we? And it is. It's a calling. But you know, to me that word almost seems like it's some kind of noble endeavor. And it is. But it doesn't feel personal. Not in the same way as what we read in the scriptures. In 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says it differently. He says, you are a chosen generation. You are chosen. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who were once not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. It's more than a calling. It's a choosing. We are chosen. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me. Where I go, You go. Step into that spirit wind. And follow me. This is the calling that we have. It's the same calling from the beginning. In Isaiah chapter 43. And verse 1. As you read this. Or as you listen to me. Put your name in here. He says. But now. Thus says the Lord. Who created you. Oh insert name. Insert your name right here. You and he who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. He called us personally to follow him. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You just need to follow him. As Abraham was called, we just need to follow him. Jesus is calling us to follow him and he has chosen us to follow him. We're not here by accident. We are called by him to follow him. And it's, it's not enough to be in church. It's not enough to preach in church. We have to really follow him. Every part of our life in that spirit wind. Feel the wind pushing us on the back. Pushing us into directions that maybe we don't want to go. Or leading us in a a different way than where we wanted to go. We obey the commandments of God. That's good. We follow his holy days. We understand his holy days. That is really good. It helps us. It it gives us this insight, doesn't it? How many people are missing this insight that we have today because they just simply don't observe Pentecost? But you know, the devils know all of this stuff too, don't they? And they fear. It's not enough to just know. We have to be led by the Spirit. We have to step outside and feel the Spirit wind blowing us in that direction. You might be struggling with this message. You may even be mad at me right now. I don't know. I get it. We all have a life. We have our families to worry about. I have obligations. I have responsibilities. We do. We've made agreements. We have financial commitments. We all do. And I cannot say with, that Jesus is calling you to travel halfway around the world as a missionary. I don't know. But we need to open ourselves up to that spirit wind. To feel the direction of the Holy Spirit. To pray earnestly and openly and to help Jesus tell us where that we should go. You know? I've been praying for direction a lot lately and maybe we all have these are very strange times and and is this the beginning of things and we're not sure and so we've been praying and I've been praying for direction for Jesus to show me what does he want me to do next what more does he want me to do and then I would pray along with that if you can give me a big fat safety net while I'm out there that would be great Right, I need that extra protection. That's unfortunately not the way it works. But he's already given us the safety net, didn't he? You already said that he has called us by our name. That he has called us to carry his spirit and to carry the gospel to anyone that will listen. You know, Curtis talked about handing out the booklets. Let's hand out the booklets. Or whatever version of that is today. Right? Let's do that. And the safety net he's always given us. He's already given us. He said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You're not in this alone. When the rivers are coming against you, they will not wash over you. I am with you. And when we pass through the fire, right, we know all about the fire. Because we have the spirit of God in us. We have that fire in us. Those are the only safety nets we need. We have to step into the spirit wind. And follow the calling of our Savior.